All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today, we're going to be talking about performing an effective compliance probe or investigation. It's been really great to receive so much feedback from so many different people and some of the topic suggestions that you all are submitting to me, uh, believe it or not, are greatly appreciated. Um, if the topic is not a full podcast segment topic, um, I am doing my best to find a way to integrate that particular topic, issue, concern into a broader discussion. So keep the suggestions coming, and I will do my best to find a way to incorporate those into the podcast. So, yes, I did just take a sip of coffee, and I know that's so unprofessional, but for whatever reason, something is going on with the weather here in South Georgia uh, this week, and it is wreaking havoc on allergies and giving sore throats and all kinds of ear infections and funky things going on down here. So I'll do my best to minimize any disruptions as we go through this. So uh, let's go on and get after it. With any of my podcasts, you know, the lawyers always make me state the following. Obviously, I am not an attorney, and this is uh, not a session providing legal advice. I am a regulatory compliance consultant sharing my insights, my experience, and processes with you. This information is not a substitution for legal advice from a qualified attorney. The comments and opinions shared in this podcast are not those of Doctors Management, LLC, and the company bears no responsibility for anything that I ever say. All right. So when we talk about performance an effective um, compliance probe or an investigation, it's important to talk about the rules. And there's only one rule. I kind of feel like I'm going into a discussion about Fight Club, right? The first rule of Fight Club is there is no Fight Club. <laughs> well, rule number one is pretty simple. Because there's only one rule. Any and all investigations or examinations have to be performed under the direction of a qualified attorney. And this is done to preserve the privilege. Now, obviously, your attorney will handle any up-john warnings or any ABA criminal justice section statements. But keep this in mind. Failure to use your brain and to have a qualified healthcare-centered attorney direct the investigation or examination is on you and only you. And as such, if there is a demise of your organization, it's all on you. And I know some of you out there listening right now are going, whoa, that's a bit rough, Sean. Yeah, I know it is. But that's the reality. We work in a heavily regulated, heavily 
litigated environment. And the landscape in healthcare continues to change almost right in front of our eyes on a daily basis. So it's so important to make sure that we don't cut corners, that we don't trip over dollars to pick up dimes when making a determination on hiring experts, on bringing in proper counsel. And I'll talk more about, well, let's do it now. I'm so fortunate. I'm really honestly blessed that I get the opportunity, the privilege, whatever you want to call it, to be able to work with so many different law firms across the United States. I think now I work with something close to 30 different law firms across the United States, all of them focused on healthcare. Now, I do from time to time get those law firms that reach out to me and they don't really do a lot in the healthcare space, but for whatever reason, maybe they handled uh, a provider's uh, divorce or real estate transaction or creating their uh, estate. And for whatever reason, they feel like, hey, you know, the, the, the provider reached out to me and yeah, they've been with me for so long and I know them and their family, so I can, I can, I can handle this. And then they get into it, and they start realizing that each of these statutes, these laws, these acts, have so many moving parts. There's so many tentacles coming off of them. And it becomes overwhelming. It becomes almost to the point where they start scratching their head and wondering, how does anybody do this kind of stuff? And I know I have attorneys that are listening to this podcast. Um, I, I get some of their feedback and, um, I think any attorney who is honest with him or herself is going to think about what we're talking about here in picking the right counsel. And they're going to say, yeah, you know, healthcare may be an area that I'm going to stay away from unless I'm really, really going to specialize in that. Because you can't just dabble in it. And I'll give you an example here now. The 60-day rule. So a lot of people have a lot of misunderstandings or a lot of misperceptions about the 60-day rule. And this was part of a larger uh, uh, act Um or law. This is part of ACCA. And under the 60-day rule, it requires providers to report and refund overpayments within 60 days of identification. Now, that's the key word. Identification of an overpayment. So, an overpayment is identified when a person has or should have through the exercise of reasonable diligence, determined that an overpayment was in fact received. So, what does reasonable diligence mean? Well, 
It's demonstrated by timely good faith investigations, which CMS themselves indicates is at most six months from the receipt of credible information regarding a potential overpayment absent extraordinary circumstances. So, let's just make it real simple. We have six months at a maximum to conduct, to conduct a bona fide investigation. That's considered our reasonable diligence. And once we confirm the identification of an overpayment from that point, we have 60 days in which to make that refund. So we actually have a total of eight months between the investigation and when we refund any dollars to CMS. Now, remember, an overpayment is not identified until it is quantified. But there's always an exception. And the exception is, unless a provider fails to exercise reasonable diligence. Now, overpayments identified by a probe sample do not need to be returned until the full overpayment amount is actually identified. So again, failure to exercise reasonable diligence to investigate credible information regarding a potential overpayment will result in a violation of the 60-day rule under the, and this is what it's called, should have known standard if an overpayment was actually received. So if you're taking any notes, we're talking about the should-have-known standard. And remember, CMS advises providers to maintain records of all their reasonable diligence efforts. So, once we get credible information from a source in the organization, we have to then move into setting up and conducting interviews with the potential individuals who are implicated in the problem or problems. One of the things that I like to create is something called an interview memorandum. And I do this to let the individuals know this is an interview being conducted under the direction of an attorney and that everything we talk about is privileged. Now, over the course of my career, I've participated in a lot of civil and criminal um, proceedings. And it's always interesting to read another expert's report where they are trying to quote witnesses. And I will tell you from my experience, there are absolutely pros and cons to doing this. So here's what I'll tell you. If you're going to quote somebody, make sure you get it right. Don't paraphrase or try to embellish on what somebody said to give you a talking point or a gotcha statement. Use their exact words. Get it right. Because there's no doubt it could cost you big time in the end. Now, for me, 
I also like to use separate session, uh, sections for what I call behavioral impressions and facts. Because the behavioral impressions are my observations of how somebody reacted to certain questions or how their mannerisms or their personality may have changed during the course of them making a statement. But I always want to keep my observations separate from the facts. And I will tell you, I, I try to stay away from giving a bunch of opinions. I reserve my opinion for the very end. And I have the right to give an opinion because I am the subject matter expert. I am the expert who's going to be testifying if it goes that far in a case. So as an expert, not only am I giving facts and observations, but I'm also providing my conclusion, my opinion as to what everything points to as somebody who's been doing this for an extended period of time. Now, one of the really important things to include in your interview memorandum is um, what I refer to as an attorney work product disclaimer. And I say something along the lines of this. This memorandum is a summary and analysis of the discussion that occurred during the investigation or examination and is neither a verbatim nor a chronological transcription of it. I have incorporated into this memorandum my thought processes and analyses, including factual interpretations and behavioral impressions. This memorandum contains privileged communications and constitutes attorney work product created in contemplation of potential litigation. This memorandum has not been shown to, reviewed by, approved, or adopted by the witness and remains in draft form. So that's what I use as my work product disclaimer. And here's the final thing that I'll say on this topic anyways. Make sure you maintain all of your notes from the interviews. It is so critical that you take copious notes, that you really take the time to not only listen to what the interviewee is saying, but to hear them, to observe them, and to process that in a way that you can convey it in a clear, concise, and expert manner in your final report of findings. Now, it's so critical to make sure that you set the proper tone within your organization. And I talk about this all the time, right? Hence, the compliance guy, right? So, again, your compliance plans to be successful 
need to include at a minimum a code of ethics, corporate and operational compliance policies and procedures, communication and training logs, risk assessment, controls, monitoring and analytics, and incident response plans. So, again, taking that into consideration, we also need to think about questions that need to be asked of ourselves as the investigator, interviewer, expert, whatever, whatever you want to consider yourself in this situation. So for me, when I'm looking at a compliance program to figure out whether it works in practice, right? I look at the three key questions asked by the Department of Justice, the criminal division, in their document referred to as evaluating corporate compliance programs. There's three key questions that they ask. So here are sort of my questions to go along with that. The first one is simple. Was written guidance available? Was it accurate? And was it well publicized? Second, were implicated parties trained on the guidance? Folks, you can't create a paper compliance program, stick it on a shelf, never educate anybody, and then try to hold people accountable when bad things happen. Was management direction consistent with that written guidance? And did performance metrics and compensation support compliance with the guidance? Was the issue considered during routine risk assessment activities? Your risk assessment is so critical. And then just a few more questions. Is monitoring or auditing of the activity performed on a regular basis? Again, that's key to whether or not you have a living, breathing document. Was internal reporting methods used? Was response timely and complete? And was the matter or issue correctly escalated? Those, to me, are key questions that need to be answered. So in addition to those questions, we also want to look at compliance risk monitoring, right? What regulatory guidance exists? Have we built a team and are we taking accountability for our actions and those of our staff? What risk identification and mitigation processes or steps have actually been put in place? And how are we assessing the plan? What documentation exists to demonstrate that we are in fact, 
creating a bona fide process. And then finally, what ongoing monitoring exists to identify new risks? So for me, obviously, in any of my podcasts, um, nothing, <laughs> nothing is complete without actually um, talking about some statutes or laws or their subsections. So when we talk about regulatory guidance, I want to talk about the um, Effective Compliance and Ethics Program. This is subsection 8B2.1. And here's what it says specifically. To have an effective compliance and ethics program for purposes of a preceding section, it's what they call a culpability score. This is subsection 8C2.5 and subsection B1 of subsection 8D1.4, which is recommended conditions of probation for organizations. Two things. An organization shall first exercise due diligence to prevent and detect criminal conduct. And second, otherwise promote an organizational culture that encourages ethical conduct and a commitment to compliance with the law. And it goes on to further say that such compliance and ethics programs shall be reasonably designed, implemented, and enforced so that the program is generally effective in preventing and detecting criminal conduct. Now, really important, listen to this next section. The failure to prevent or detect the instant offense does not necessarily mean that the program is not generally effective in preventing and detecting criminal conduct because we're expected to demonstrate a reasonable effort. It's not absolute. Remember, due diligence and the promotion of an organizational culture that encourages ethical conduct and a commitment to compliance with the law within the meaning of those subsections requires at a minimum that the organization shall establish standards and procedures to prevent and detect criminal conduct. And that the organization's governing authority shall be knowledgeable about the content and operation of the compliance and ethics program and shall exercise reasonable oversight with respect to the implementation and effectiveness of the compliance and ethics program. Now, just a couple more. High-level personnel of the organization shall ensure that the organization has an effective compliance and ethics program as described in the guidelines. Specific individuals within high-level personnel need to be assigned overall responsibility for the compliance and the ethics program. And then it gets into a conversation about specific individuals. But here are the last two that I want to address in this particular section. First is the fact that the organization shall use reasonable efforts 
not to include within the substantial authority personnel of the organization any individual whom the organization knew or should have known through the exercise of due diligence has engaged in illegal activities or other conduct inconsistent with an effective compliance and ethics program. And finally, the organization shall take reasonable steps to communicate periodically and in a practical manner its standards and procedures and other aspects of the compliance and ethics program to the individuals referred to in the preceding subparagraph by conducting effective training programs and otherwise disseminating information appropriate to such individuals' respective roles and responsibilities. Now, this information comes directly from Chapter 8 of the United States Sentencing Guidelines. That's where you can find this information that we were just talking about. Now, corporate responsibility and corporate compliance, we started talking about. And there's some structural questions that need to be asked. The first is, does the compliance program address the significant risk of the organization? Such a critical question. And second, how are those risks determined? And how are new compliance risks identified and incorporated into the program? Remember, according to the Office of Inspector General, healthcare organizations operate in a highly regulated industry and must address various standards, government program conditions of participation and reimbursement, as well as other standards applicable to corporate citizens irrespective of their role in the organization. And a comprehensive ongoing process of compliance risk assessment is important to the leadership's awareness of new challenges to the organization and its evaluation of management's priorities and program resource allocations. So one only has to go back to 2015 to when the Department of Justice issued new guidance on individual accountability for corporate wrongdoing. And this is called the Yates Memorandum, um, whereby she announced a new initiative designed to combat corporate misconduct and seek accountability from individuals involved in suspected corporate wrongdoing. And while the Yates Memorandum provided six specific criteria designated or designed to guide uh, prospective DOJ enforcement, largely against the C-suites, right? Your CEOs, CFOs, COOs, CCOs. It did offer several significant takeaways and does call for a shift in how companies and their directors carry out their compliance and internal investigation functions. So remember, in order to be eligible for any cooperation credit, the corporation has to provide to the DOJ all relevant facts about the individuals involved in the corporate misconduct. Now, both Criminal and civil corporate investigations 
are required to focus on individuals from the inception of the investigation. Which is why criminal and civil attorneys handling corporate investigations should be in routine communication with one another. And as we talked about earlier, absent extraordinary circumstances, no corporate resolution will provide protection from criminal or civil liability for any individuals. Because corporate cases should not be resolved without a clear plan to resolve related individual cases before the statute of limitations expires. And declinations as to individuals in such cases have to be memorialized. And the reason is civil DOJ attorneys consistently focus on individuals as well as the company and evaluate whether to bring suit against an individual based on considerations beyond that individual's ability to pay. They don't care if you can pay. If they can put you in jail or exclude you from the federal payer programs, that's good enough for them. So, a takeaway that I want to leave y'all with as healthcare organizations, corporations, as well as for any of your directors, middle management, senior leadership, and your counsel. Keep in mind that when you're dealing with the Department of Justice, especially when we're referring to anything tied to the Yates Memorandum, is this. Cooperation is an all-or-nothing thing. You cannot receive cooperation credit without identifying culpable individuals and divulging all relevant facts. So according to the Yates Memorandum, companies can only receive cooperation credit in criminal or civil matters by completely disclosing all relevant facts about individual misconduct regardless of an individual's position, their status, or seniority in the company. So it's important to keep in mind that with this all-or-nothing approach, companies cannot receive partial credit for cooperation that stops short of identifying culpable individuals. So companies need to weigh carefully the benefits of this type of voluntary disclosure against the risk of not receiving credit or that the information could potentially be leveraged by the government in subsequent proceedings. All right, so there's a lot of things that we look at when conducting investigations or examinations of an organization to make determinations as to our disclosure of information to the government. One of them is um, the FLEEP Memorandum, um, which was issued by a um, previous deputy. And what this talks about is the fact that a corporation need not disclose and prosecutors may not request privileged communications or work product as a condition 
for the corporation's eligibility to receive cooperation credit. So you can see how the Fleet Memorandum is in stark contrast to the Yates Memorandum. And the interesting thing is when I talk to some of my uh, contacts and, and friends at the DOJ, you know, they still utilize aspects of the Philippe Memorandum as well as the Yates Memorandum. So it, it becomes quite a challenge to figure out what direction some of these folks are actually going to go. And I think they probably, some of them struggle with it a little bit as well. And remember, under the Philippe Memorandum, this prohibition expressly includes notes and memoranda from interviews in connection with internal investigations so long as the uh, the corporation timely discloses relevant facts about the punitive misconduct. So as I said, while the Philippe and Yates memorandum both purport to limit disclosures to strictly non-privileged information, the newer of the memos, which is the Yates memorandum, leaves the door completely open to the DOJ's implicity seeking privileged communications or a waiver under the auspices of searching for what they consider to be all relevant facts necessary for a company to earn cooperation credit. So while facts may not be subject to privilege, the process in gathering them, as well as internal investigation documents, including interview notes, memoranda, and other work product, it may be privileged and would be of particular concern if expected to be discussed, especially if the documents contain statements or information on culpable individuals, or if a corporation's internal investigation, aside from privileged documents, was largely unfruitful in identifying culpable individuals. And keep in mind, under the Yates guidance, it may complicate an organization's ability to earn cooperation credit while preserving the attorney-client and work product privileges. See, this is why I stress the importance of choosing proper counsel. So let's move on from some of the heavier hitting regulatory stuff and, and let's talk about how we actually define compliance. For me, healthcare compliance is the process of basically following rules, following regulations and laws that relate to healthcare practices. So healthcare organizations, as we all know, we're held to very strict standards very strict regulations and laws from the federal and state levels, and violating these can and often does result in lawsuits, or at a minimum, significant fines or potentially the loss of license and exclusion. You know, what, what has bothered me for so many years, and I, and I believe it bothers the majority of you who are actually listening to what it is that I'm talking about on my podcast, is this. The payers are not held to the same standards. Now, yeah, they get investigated by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and they get investigated by the Office of Inspector General, and they get sent up for settlement talks or prosecutions by the Department of Justice, but they are far and few between. 
Now, the dollar amounts tend to be massive. But think about the money that these payers are taking in. So, I don't know if it's all relative or not, but whatever. So, again, when we're talking about compliance, um, you know, I, I just got done talking about the Philippe Memorandum, but there's also something called the Philippe Factors. And as I said, this was um, previously... Uh, released under the USAM, uh, what they call the United States Attorney's Manual, which is turned into the Justice Manual. So there's been changes to the name. There's also been some significant um, changes. But again, the Philippe factors, which is what they refer to these as, they're still in effect, and there's 10 of them. But the two that I often point out when I'm giving lectures or um, I'm, I'm working with uh, counsel or I'm working with an organization on an investigation are two things. And it relates back to some of the stuff that I've talked about earlier. And these two are number five and number seven from the list of 10 from the Philippe factors. The first is number five, the existence and effectiveness of the corporation's pre-existing compliance program. So important. Now, even though this comes out of the USAM, you'll still find the same language in the justice manual. And number seven is the corporation's remedial actions, including any efforts to implement an effective corporate compliance program or to improve an existing one, to replace responsible management, to discipline or terminate wrongdoers, to pay restitution, and to cooperate with relevant government agencies. So pretty important stuff. Again, those are under the fleet factors uh, those came out of the old United States Attorney's Manual, but you'll still find them in the Justice Manual. So when we're talking about the Justice Department, right, we've talked about risk-based auditing. And again, I just think it is absolutely critical that you implement the eighth aspect of a corporate compliance program. And I think it's important to create a policy on risk-based internal auditing. And you could keep it pretty general, keep it pretty simple. You could say something to the effect of, the practice subscribes to a risk-based internal audit model as opposed to a compliance-only model to ensure the organization's tolerance to risk aversions is fully understood and complied with by all employees regardless of their position. And I think it's important to talk about the fact that your organization relies on a six-step process referred to as a risk assessment or a risk assessment matrix, as it's, it's more formally known. It's, it's called a RAM, R-A-M. And, and this is to effectively and efficiently manage the compliance program. And then you could get into talking about what the purpose is and then get into defining what a risk assessment actually does um, and then go into the actual steps of your policy. And there's, again, some great information available through reliable resources um, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'd be happy to share with you a sample or template policy that I may 
have created in the past uh, on risk-based internal auditing that you can manipulate and scale to your organization. So again, a couple of things that I want to finish talking about. Obviously, in conducting an investigation or an examination, one of the most important things, especially if we're talking about coding and billing and documentation, is understanding how to defend medical necessity. And a lot of people want to, want to generalize medical necessity, but you can't because the courts don't generalize it. Um, I've talked about the Kaminsky case in a previous podcast, maybe more. And this was a case brought before the Second Circuit Court of Appeals where they actually defined medical necessity. And, and here's just a quick blurb of what it says. Unless the contrary, the contrary is specified, the term medical necessity must refer to what is medically necessary for a particular patient and hence entails an individual assessment rather than a general determination of what works in an ordinary case. So when we talk about medical necessity, we want to talk about the fact that the services are performed in accordance with generally accepted standards of medical practice. So what does that mean? Well, generally accepted standards of medical practice mean standards that are based on credible scientific evidence published in peer-reviewed med medical literature generally recognized by the relevant medical community or otherwise consistent with the standards set forth in policy issues involving clinical judgment. So Medicare also has its own view of medical necessity. So there is a legal doctrine by which evidence-based clinical standards are used to determine whether a treatment or a procedure is reasonable, necessary, and or appropriate. This is actually defined in the Medicare program, um, and it's defined under Title 18 of the Social Security Act, specifically Section 1862A1A. It's kind of a legally description, if you will. Um, and here's what it says. Notwithstanding any other provision of this title, no payment may be made, un made under Part A or Part B for any expenses incurred for items or services which, <laughs> ready for this, except for items and services described in a seceding paragraph, are not reasonable and necessary for the diagnosis or treatment of illness or injury or to improve the functioning of a malformed body member. Got it? All right. So obviously medical necessity ties directly into the False Claims Act. And when we talk about the False Claims Act or an FCA, we talk about things like knowingly. So knowingly submit, you know, submitting false claims for the purpose of receiving an entitlement for non-covered services. This is what the FCA goes after. There's also something called a reverse false claim. And this addresses knowing an improper avoidance of an obligation to pay monies back to the U.S. government. Again, under the Affordable Care Act, as we talked about in the very beginning of this podcast, they created a statutory obligation to report and refund overpayments. Again, that's your 60-day rule. You also have your self-disclosure protocol. I'm not getting into that in this discussion today. 
um, I have an entire podcast on the OIG self-disclosure protocol. But here's the thing. It is absolutely vital. It's critical to understand the FCA covers potential false claims based on the conduct at the time the claims were submitted. This is also referred to as an affirmative false claim, as well as potential false claims based on later discovery and mishandling of overpayment refund obligations. So I think it becomes important to define the term knowing. And it's pretty simple. This is actual knowledge, deliberate ignorance, or reckless disregard. But what's important to keep in mind is that the intent to defraud is no longer required. The government simply has to demonstrate that claims were submitted with inaccurate information because that's all that is now required under the law. Obviously, we all know that it is improper to bill Medicare for services or treatment that is not medically necessary, and to knowingly do so is a violation of the False Claims Act. And a physician or any other entity or, or person who knowingly bills for services which are not medically necessary can be prosecuted for fraud by the government. And the penalties are significant. They can reach as high as treble damages, meaning three times the amount billed, in addition to exclusion from federal and state health care programs. Um, if you're a compliance geek like myself, um, you can really find a lot of great information under 31 USC subsection 3729. And the False Claims Act is, is specifically laid out under A1G. And there is a ton of information under the False Claims Act if you take a look at that section. Um, all right. So in the past, I've talked about developing a corrective action plan. If you are conducting an investigation or an examination, one of the things that you're going to want to be able to do for your client or for your organization is to um, help them to understand that corrective action plans, CAPS, are a critical component to sending a clear message that we are committed to doing the right thing. It shows our compliance plan is a living, breathing document that's ever-adjusting and growing with the organization. Again, as I've talked about in the past, most compliance professionals want to self-disclose when an error is identified, but self-disclosure is not always warranted, as I've talked about in the past. Oftentimes, things we make mistakes on don't lead to undeserved remunerations. They could simply be a breakdown in process that needs to be better defined or clarified. So remember, before a decision is made about self-disclosure, you need to speak with your healthcare attorney to determine the best course of action. However, keep in mind, regardless of what the final determination is, you're still required to develop a corrective action plan. And as I've talked about in the past, there are five basic aspects to a cap. Obviously, the first is the issue, defining the problem. This is where we want to identify the potential problem and provide a lay explanation of the problem. Second is then to understand the root cause, to identify what led to the potential problem. Third 
are your action steps. This is what we do to identify the steps taken to correct or reverse the potential problem. And then we want to move into the improvement benchmarks and timeframes. So basically, how will you monitor the situation going forward to ensure compliance? And then finally, the compliance officer or the attorney for the organization has to certify the cap. So, in closing, I want to just quickly run through a few things, because this is talking about conducting an investigation or examination. So we have to have an effective investigation policy. So we need to have at least one anonymous reporting option. We need to be able to look at adverse audit results and the employee exit interviews because these should also trigger investigations. Remember, there's an explicit obligation for supervisors to report concerns raised by employees. And we need to ensure that our policies on investigations link to our non-retaliation policy. We've talked about the fact that it's critical to have widely publicized all employees, to your vendors and to the public, a code of conduct that our staff, irrespective of their position in the organization, are expected to comply with and adhere to. So, again, making certain that our investigation policy addresses the ability to capture relevant data, all sources, all involved persons, locations, timeframes. We want them to consider subject matter codes to aid in the data analytics process. We want to make sure that we have a process for determining whether to refer to HR or to our quality or compliance department. We need to be able to conduct an assessment of company risk and the level of that risk and designation of a lead investigator in the organization. We want to have a process for determining whether to investigate under privilege and, if so, whether to refer to outside counsel. And, and there are benefits to having general counsel in, you know, for larger organizations, but a lot of general counsel also like to outsource to um, uh, counsel as well outside of the organization. Our policy should also help us to determine a need for document holds and preservation tactics. We need to be able to identify and obtain any governing policies or SOP, Standard Operating Procedures, we want to make certain that we conduct quality interviews, that we document these interviews, that we track all investigation steps. Again, we want to make certain that we have a root cause analysis and corrective action plan where a report is substantiated. We want to be able to incorporate or cross-reference, meaning we want to report and refund when overpayments are identified. And then we want to have the ability to take actions to remediate violations. We want to have actions to address 
root cause of violations and safeguards against future violations. We need to ensure that we have a mechanism to track to completion. And again, we talked about self-disclosures when it's appropriate and then communications to key constituencies and then follow-up. Follow-up is key. So when you're getting started, ask yourself a few questions. First, who should investigate? Should it be the compliance office? Should it be independently versus under the direction of counsel? Should it be managers with compliance office oversight? Should it be in-house counsel? Should it be outside counsel, regular versus special counsel? Again, there's factors to consider, right? Like the scope of the allegation, the likelihood of a whistleblower. Are company officers implicated? Is reporting to the government likely? Will you want cooperation credit? Is there the potential for litigation related to subject of the investigation? Again, for me, it's all about preserving the privilege. Document that the investigation purpose is to obtain legal advice from the outset. Remember, investigation tracking systems should clearly identify the investigation as privilege and place privileged label on all investigation-related communications, your interview summaries and reports. Make sure you segregate documents in privileged hard copy or electronic files, and any third-party experts or auditors should be engaged by counsel and act under the direction and control of counsel. Remember, if compliance is assisting with the investigation, legal counsel should issue formal written requests for assistance in conducting a privileged investigation under the direction and control of legal counsel. And subsequently, Every investigation step, every interview, email search, document review and analysis should clearly be conducted at the direction of counsel as memorialized by investigation plan or email. And remember, provide interviewees with upjohn warnings because investigation reports should be issued by counsel and state the purpose and reflect legal advice. Make sure you have a plan for your investigation. You need to consider utilizing investigation plan templates to promote consistent and uniformly detailed plans. You need to determine the need for document holds, imaging of hard drives, disabling email delete functions, and other document preservation strategies. You need to identify and obtain any governing policies, identify and obtain other key documents through document requests to individuals, review of centralized files, repositories, email searches, SharePoint access, whatever it is. Make sure you determine the need for audits, data analysis, and engagement of outside experts. Determine the role, if any, of HR, IT, corporate security, internal audit, business unit management, and executive teams. Make sure you identify key interviewees in prioritized tranches. Use two-person interview teams. Consider a non-attorney, um, what we call a uh, prover, in event of litigation. And periodically revisit investigation plans and adapt as facts continue to evolve. There's two different types of warnings. One is called a czar warning. And a czar warning also should be given if there is potential for government self-disclosure. 
So employees themselves may be indicted for obstruction of justice based on false statements in interviews with company counsel. Very important to keep this in mind. And we have actually seen in a few recent cases um, individuals also being charged with obstruction of an in, in investigation and in, 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 uh, obstruction of justice. So be careful with that. Um, trying to think, what else could I really uh, um, push forward? Uh, obviously, we want to uh, ensure proper identification of potential risks. You know, make certain directives come from senior management to implement a risk monitoring process. Ensure legal counsel obviously is engaged. Make sure you conduct a gap analysis to identify potential risks. And then your timetables are obviously going to be dependent on the size of your organization. It may take months to identify all potential risks and risk areas. So make sure you schedule meetings on a regular basis with your risk management team, if you have one, or your compliance team, so that you can review the risks that have been identified and assign team members to assess each area of risk. And then assignments uh, are, are, are based on the oversight responsibilities of those individuals. And again, be smart. Um, you know, use a risk assessment templates, a template to frame the issue or issues in terms of the requirement and how the potential risk is being controlled. And if there is a high probability of noncompliance, potential damage, ensure legal is involved and that communications are covered under attorney-client privilege. And don't forget, documentation of potential risks are critical, right? What are the current regulatory requirements? Who is and should be involved? Make sure you're determining the status and mitigate your risk. What is the potential impact of financial penalties, regulatory oversight, bad press? Who is responsible for monitoring the risk? How often should we be conducting risk monitoring? These are all critical questions. All right, so this brings me to the end of my podcast. Um, I hope that you have found the general information, the regulatory information, and the steps to conducting a quality investigation beneficial and useful for yourself and or your organization. Again, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule uh, to spend with me. I hope, again, we get an opportunity for you to join us on another podcast down the road. I'm Sean Weiss. Thank you again, and take care.